when she first brought it to the table, I was like, yeah, okay, let's let's have that as a possibility. And also, at any given time, we can go back to monogamy. And then I'd ask her, if, if you find a guy you're interested, let me know. And then, you know, so the thing is that we, we're not, like, actively looking to hook up. If it comes to us, you know. I met a guy in, like, one week. This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each episode, we explore love and sex by asking a single question. To find the answers, we ask experts and listeners like you. This episode contains explicit material. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, what's the secret to a successful open relationship? This episode was inspired by an email we received from one of our listeners, who you heard before the break. His name is Alejandro, and he wrote in about the open relationship he's in with his girlfriend, Ruth. They live in New York City and have been together for two years. About six months into their relationship, they decided to open it up. We had Alejandro and Ruth sit down with us in our studio to discuss their relationship and how opening it has affected them as a couple. Before we hear from them, let's discuss the various types of non-monogamous relationships with our favorite doctor, Zana Vrangolova. Dr. Vrangolova joined us on our real Fifty Shades of Grey episode to discuss kink and BDSM. Her specialty is non-monogamous relationships, casual sex, promiscuity, and as she likes to say, other fun stuff. What inspired me to study non-monogamy is um, it's a fascinating new kind of relationship type. In fact, it's not that new. Um, Open relationships of some sort have existed for a very long time. But there's been some sort of a revival, I think, um, in the last five to 10 years of various forms of of non-consensually non-monogamous relationships. I don't think you know, they're right for everyone, but I think it's a, uh, it's a, it's a relationship structure that we've ignored for a very long time. And there's a lot in there that can be useful to a lot of people. And so, um, what would you say defines a polyamorous or an open relationship? Or I guess maybe you could talk about distinctions between like Mm -hmm. polyamory versus an open relationship. I think people get confused just about the terminology. Mm So there, there are a lot of different terms that are being used to refer to these sort of alternative relationship types, um, and there is no one definitive answer as of now. Um, but what we use in research, um, at least, is a distinction uh, between several types of consensual non-monogamy with the umbrella term for all of them being consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy or negotiated non-monogamy or responsible non-monogamy. So any of those, but with the non-monogamy kind of being the um, uh, the, the term that uh, unites all of them. Now within that umbrella, you can think about several different types. Uh, one of those is uh, swinging, probably the most kind of famous and and, um, longest existing kind of standing form uh, in in U.S. society, which is a very couple-centric type of relationship where people um, have uh, commitment, emotional and and relationship commitment to only one person, uh, but they go and explore and have sexual experiences with other people that are usually very casual in nature. And they often do them together. So as a couple, they'll have sex with another couple or maybe bring in another woman or another man 
go to sex parties together, but it, usually things are done together as a couple. Um, the other uh, very prevalent and these days uh, talked about quite a bit form is polyamory, which is uh, when people have multiple, both romantic and sexual relationships with multiple people. Um, open relationship is often also used. And in, in research, we've tried to kind of keep that term um, specifically to people who are kind of couple-centered, cent but they um, have sex, mostly casual sex with other people, but not together as a couple, kind of go off on their own and have you know separate dates and separate uh, experiences. One of the most important things to remember is that when we're talking about non-monogamous relationships in this episode, we're not talking about cheating. These open relationships are consensual, and they involve an agreement between both parties. One woman who paved the way for a particular kind of non-monogamy, which she refers to as being an ethical slut, is Dossie Easton. She's a self-proclaimed happy flower child during the summer of love, and she took a vow of permanent non-monogamy in 1969 and went on to co-write a book, a manifesto really, called The Ethical Slut. Those are two pretty charged words, especially when combined. And you have to realize this was published well before anybody had really made an effort to reappropriate the word slut. Which is why we were very excited to hop on a quick phone call with Dossie and get her perspective. When we came to do a title, and you're supposed to do titles like, you know, Polyamory in the New Millennium or something. Um, and all of those seemed kind of gutless and, uh, and um, kind of as if by making up words in dead languages, we could make it cleaner and that calling it slut was sort of dirty. Uh, and I, I'm one, a person who loves to reclaim language. So the ethical slut was exactly the message I wanted to put out there that was previously been considered um, immoral behavior can be done in ways that are ethical and respect everybody's needs and everybody's feelings and everybody's boundaries. To bring this back to our couple, Alejandro and Ruth, they decided to be totally honest and ethical about their open relationship, and they created a set of rules for each other to follow. He's laughing because he has way more rules than I do for me. Um, I'm the girl in the relationship. <laughs> yeah. <just> the guy. <laughs> I'm sort of really blasé about it. I, I think, well, I think part of that comes from the fact that I know he loves me and he tells me he loves me all the time and I'm not as good as communication, but I just know he loves me. So I, I sort of like, try that, try this. If that makes you happy, go try that. Um, uh, so my rules for him are, what are my rules for you? <laughs> what are my rules for you? Um, uh, I mean, just, well, I think the biggest thing is that I want him to treat women with respect. So, um, he's, I, I had no doubt he would never do that. He would never do that. But I think that's, a, a, he knows, like, like I want to see him. I mean, I guess sort of fussed at you before if I think that you have an attitude that's not really, um, good, but I think that's the biggest thing. Um, the other thing is I want to know everything from beginning to end. So he tells me, I mean, maybe not if he gets a girl's number, but if he's going on a date, I want to know he's going on a date. I want to know well, who she is. We started with the girl's number, and that became so pointless because, oh, I got a number, and it will never go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I got a number, and never go anywhere. And I'm like, I don't want to bother you with this. I'm going to get a number when I'm, like, invited back to her place <laughs> and about to go do the thing and be like, you know, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, that was... Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, and, um, and safety. Interestingly enough, ethically non-monogamous relationships have a nearly identical rate of STIs when compared to monogamous relationships, and not radically higher, 
which might be surprising to some people. But it actually makes sense because in monogamous relationships, when people cheat, they're not prepared to have safe sex and would obviously not be open about needing to get tested after the fact. Additionally, because guilt would likely be present, cheating frequently occurs under the influence of alcohol or drugs, which leads to people making more reckless choices. Well, I got really frustrated because um, so he's very organized and he came up with a PDF of all the rules for our relationship. Um, and uh, he... General guidelines. Really. Yeah, they were, no, they were rules. Um, uh, and we have the, I have that saved on my computer and I never look at it. Um, he can do whatever he wants because I think it's also a sense of that he is kinkier, a little bit kinkier than I am. So I sort of, yes, you are. <laughs> Fine. <sure. laughs> um, but you can tell him about your rules for me. Um, well, there's, there's kind of, it's kind of like a list, but, um, I think, um, some of the biggest ones, just kind of give some of the biggest ones. So, um, Anal sex, just something that I find very personal to the two of us, and I, I wouldn't want to share that with some someone else. Um, and we had a discussion about, and, and I have been able to negotiate some of these things that I have put on the table. Uh, and another one of the rules was um, not allowing uh, another man um, ejaculate on, on, on her or on top of her or, and we had agreed to that rule, but the the first time that she hooked up with somebody, that rule went out the window. Totally forgot about that rule. There was a lot <laughs> of rules, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, quite honestly, uh, I mean, I've been very surprised because going into this, uh, you know, the issue of jealousy is, is, is a big thing. And I think that's where most people are, are always worried about. And the, 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 the abstract concept of her being with another man wasn't really getting too much to me, but... Uh, those things uh, that were about rules not being followed became, you know, that kind of the, the friction between us. While Alejandro and Ruth seem to have pretty clear guidelines for their relationship, other couples have different tactics, from employing a don't ask, don't tell policy to using an out of the area code policy, where they can only pursue hookups with other people when they're traveling. As you can imagine, figuring out a set of rules that work for both partners can be one of the most difficult hurdles for opening up a relationship. Zana outlined a number of different ways to approach it. One thing that pretty much every person or every couple or triad or whatever in an open relationship has ever experienced is that these rules will change. And that's really important to keep in mind. You start out with a set of rules that you think will work for you, and then some of those things will in fact work and others will not. You know, you might end up thinking, oh, this is going to be easy, no problem. And then it happens and you're like, oh, that hurts. No, let's not do that again. And sometimes you think something will not feel okay, but you're like, okay, maybe we can try it, but I'm really uncomfortable with it. But all right, all right, do it. And the partner does it and you're like, oh, that was no big deal. Yeah, sure. And so these these rules will change and you should be open to change. So one thing is is allow to allow for that flexibility. Um also, oftentimes people start with a lot of rules because they need kind of to protect their, their sense of self and their security in the relationship. And then over time, as they, you know, see that this is, this is not a scary thing, you know, this is not going to end their relationship if I let my partner do these things with other people. And so they kind of get rid of many of the rules. All of these things are things that you need to think about and talk about, talk a lot. <laughs> 
You're listening to the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Coming up, you'll learn more about our natural desires when it comes to sex and relationships and find out where Ruth and Alejandro stand in regard to their open relationship. If you haven't had a chance to find HuffPost Love and Sex on iTunes, take a moment to subscribe, rate the show, and let us know what you think. You can also find us on Twitter using the handle at HuffPostPodcast, or you can reach us via email using loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. We love hearing feedback and ideas from our listeners. If you send us an email, you could be featured on a future episode. I think what we've learned from Alejandro and Ruth is that communication is king. They talked a lot before making the decision to open up their relationship and even talked about being in an open relationship before they started being in a relationship. Good point. Alejandro and Ruth both really struggled in monogamous relationships, so we know it doesn't work for everyone, which is why it seems worthwhile to try and take a step back and identify some of the common pitfalls of monogamy. I think it is very possible to have a happy, healthy, long-term monogamous relationship. Absolutely. And there are many people who are making it work. Um, it, it's not for everyone, um, but nothing sexual is for everyone ever. So um, this is just one other way that we're all different and different um, things will work for different people. Um, what we know happens in monogamy is that your desire for that one partner decreases over time. And that's almost inevitable because that raw sexual desire that we feel in the beginning toward a new partner, that thrives on novelty in your brain. It's, it's the, 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 uh, the brain areas and um, uh, in that um, work with novelty. And if you don't have novelty, there's, there isn't that much of that kind of, I wake up and just look at you and I just want to have sex with you right here and right now. Um, you can add novelty to a monogamous relationship for sure, um, but there's nothing as novel as a new partner often. And so, um, but for some people, that's not a problem. Right? I mean, that doesn't mean that their desire will entirely go away. And if they're okay with that lowered level of desire, then you know, I don't see why that would be a problem. And also another thing is that these days we live so much longer and um, you know, what most people end up doing is they go from one, uh, one monogamous relationship, long-term monogamous relationship to another, right? So um, they're happy being monogamous in that relationship, but just, you know, most of those relationships kind of run their course at some point, and then it's time to move on to to the next one. That actually sounds a lot like dating in the 21st century. So we're curious about the human desire for novelty. Is it really innate? Are we biologically prone to be promiscuous? We asked Dr. Steven Snyder to join us. He's an MD and sex therapist in New York City. Is the desire to be with just one other person innate. Yes, the desire to be with just one other person is innate, but so is the desire to be with lots of other people. We have both desires, and these parts of human nature are perennially in conflict, and that's why we need cultural institutions like marriage to tip the scales in favor of monogamy. Tell you a little history, we might say we have humanity 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. Humanity 1.0 
from what we know, six million years ago, promiscuous, just like the bonobos and chimpanzees. Around four million years ago, you get a change. You get the beginnings of pair bonding, jealousy, love. Still, people traveling in little bands of hunter-gatherers, maybe 50 to 150 people, kind of a big extended family, probably some combination of pair bonding and promiscuity. must have been very interesting, actually. Um, they didn't have any privacy. There was no bedroom doors, no divorce lawyers. It was just, you know, a little community. They just kind of made it work. And then the big change, humanity 3.0, 10,000 years ago, the beginning of food production, agriculture. And all of a sudden, you got a notion which is completely new in human history, which is the notion of property. There never was any individual property before. You had to move all the time. There's no sense owning things. You had to carry them around. But all of a sudden, you had my house, my land, my farm equipment, my wife, my children, and you get big no trespassing signs. And that's really where it all takes off in terms of the cultural institutions that enforce the pair bonding instinct over the promiscuous instinct. And we have both instincts, and various cultures have suppressed or encouraged various combinations of them. But pretty much the main thing for most uh, Western civilization has been to encourage the uh, pair bonding instinct in the direction of strict sexual monogamy and uh, to discourage the promiscuous instinct. This became especially important when uh, people discovered about paternity. You always knew who somebody's mother was, but who somebody's father was you got to get to a certain point in terms of the evolution of, your of the species before people figure that out. Listen, I totally get where Dr. Snyder is coming from. And I understand why having cultural institutions like marriage has been so important to the success of the human race. But as we move further and further away from a straight-up agrarian society, where the traditional family structure was obviously necessary to go farm the fields, I'm just not totally convinced that monogamy is really that necessary. But maybe that's just me trying to rebel against the system. You, Noah, rebel against the system? Never. <laughs> Dr. Snyder goes on to explain a couple of scales, jealousy and sexual adventure. If you're highly jealous or not sexually adventurous, monogamy is probably the best choice for you. But if you're not a jealous person and interested in pursuing particularly adventurous sex, you might be successful in an open or polyamorous relationship. Both Ruth and Alejandro are pretty high on the sexual adventure scale, but Ruth seems a bit lower than Alejandro on the jealousy scale. I mean, for the record, I've only hooked up with three men, and each time there was something that sort of went wrong. Like the first time I crossed the line before Alejandro, and that made him really upset. So then that ended. And then the second time, the guy gave me a hickey. Uh, and the, and the... And the rules that we had to Oh, yeah. I broke some then, rules. And as a consequence, we um, negotiated those rules. Yeah. And then the second, guy, the second guy gave me a hickey. So I had to text him and be like, well, you fucked up. <laughs> he was really, Alejandro was really upset. He couldn't even look at me. And then the third time, um, I hooked up with a guy, and he had an extremely large penis, which I don't like big penises. For the record, men, not all women like huge dicks. I hate that mythology. And I couldn't have sex for a couple of days, and he was really upset because somebody ruined his girl for a couple of days. It's interesting because it almost seems like when I asked you about jealousy, I was thinking, like, are you jealous of her hooking up with other guys? But it sounds more like you're jealous that she gets to hook up more than you do. You know what I mean? Like, if it, like that seems like the jealousy part there. Well, that, but also I was trying to uh, 
understand when she hooked up with the guy from the sex party, what, what was it that was really bothering me, right, about it. And I think I came to the conclusion that uh, basically I want what that guy had with my girlfriend. Yikes. That was definitely a vulnerable moment for him. It sounds like we need some advice from our favorite doctor. Are women the real winners when it comes to hetero open relationships? Yes, I think his experience is um, is, is is real. It's true. Um, they're um, given the the sort of the sexual market, if you will. Uh, there are certainly more men who would be okay having sex or um, probably having sex at, at least, maybe not having a, a, a relationship. But as far as sexual partners go, um, many more men would agree to have sex with a woman who is in, a, in an open relationship than there are women who would agree to have sex with a man who's in an open relationship, uh, at least on, on the heterosexual market. Obviously, on the gay market, things, uh, yeah, th- that, that is not an issue. Each situation is different. I think he's doing the right thing you know, being open and just have, uh, I mean, you, you pretty much have two options in that, in, in that situation. You either don't tell them, right? You either lie and, you know, uh, accept to live with yourself um, as, as sort of a, a liar and maybe someone who's manipulating and leading people on, or you come out and, and honestly and openly say it and deal with the consequences of losing a lot of those opportunities. I think Zana's right. A lot of women would be turned off or just really confused when the guy they've been flirting with at a bar all night mentions he loves his girlfriend deeply. But it seems like Alejandro might be looking in the wrong place. There are lots of spaces online where he could tap into the non-monogamous community and find women who he wouldn't have to sell on his situation. They'd already understand it. I totally agree. I also wanted to bring up open relationships within the queer community, which are probably a lot more popular. Queer people have never really been part of what we would call traditional relationships. And for us, sex is purely pleasurable, and it's not just a way to start a family. And as I always like to point out, it's one more instance where non-queer people could probably learn a thing or two from us queers. But it's also important to remember that there are lots of monogamous queer people too. Which leads us to another question. How can couples that are uninterested in pursuing polyamory stay happy and fulfilled in a monogamous relationship? Um, we could we could deconstruct every one of the pieces of that question. Um, uh, couples who are drifting apart, interestingly, it's usually not that couples drift apart. It's usually that they're too close together. Um, that's just not erotic. Typical situation we see as sex therapists, couples sitting together side by side or cuddling together on the couch watching TV every night. Death for a sexual relationship. Um we religious Jews, we try to keep the men separate from the women. It's much more erotic that way. Um, I recommend anything you can do to acknowledge and celebrate your differences as men and women, or for gay couples, anything you do that acknowledges and separates your other essential differences. It's difference, really, that makes for eroticism. And uh, as for reigniting intimacy and spark, I think that uh, you got to recognize that in a monogamous relationship that's gone on for many, many years, you're not going to get great sex. And that's really, really fundamental. What you're going to get, if you've uh, done it right, is good sex. You're going to get good sex that takes you someplace special, that satisfies you, you feel connected to your partner, but you're not going to get that spine-tingling experience that you get with a new partner. just doesn't happen that way for most people. And maybe while you celebrate your differences... 
you can explore what Dr. Zana calls gray areas. You know, things like watching porn together or talking about some other hot people that you met or may have flirted with, sort of acknowledging that there are other people who you are attracted to, but you're not going to do anything with them, or actually flirting with other people and allowing each other to flirt with other people. Um, or if you feel comfortable, maybe going to a sex party, but just watch and don't do anything with anyone else. Or go to a sex party and just have sex with one another without inviting anyone else. So there are a lot of different levels and things that you could do and still keep it monogamous, as in no physical contact with anyone else. Um, but you're still kind of playing around with the idea of novelty. This isn't the first time we've heard about the benefits of a gray area or expanding your comfort zone. In our Sex After 70 episode, one of our guests said that she and her husband like to watch porn together. I think incorporating new things and being open to trying new things is a good way to maintain novelty while staying with the same partner long term. So, Ms. Kalodny, you have a boyfriend. Would you ever consider opening up your relationship? No, I'm not personally interested, but I have some couple friends who I wish I could prescribe an open relationship to. I think some people probably really do need that setup and more power to them if they can pursue it and be bigger than the jealousy and ego and emotions that would certainly come into play. What about you, Noah? I know we haven't found you a boyfriend through any of our listeners who are supposed to be emailing us at loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com once those slackers start sending you mates and you find one that's up to snuff. Are you going to open up the relationship? You know, I've actually never been in an open relationship, but the idea of being with the same penis for the next 60 years is kind of terrifying to me. I just don't know if I could do it, no matter how pretty it was. I think I'm going to want to see other dicks. But I think for me, actually, the the part that's even harder is the emotional side of it. Um, I used to have a boyfriend who traveled a lot. And the idea of him fucking another guy was not that hard for me. But the idea of him waking up with someone else the next morning and like rolling over and making them laugh like that killed me. So I think maybe I could handle the sexual side of it, but the emotional side would still be a challenge for me. But I would want to work on that, too. So I think the jury's still out. Who knows? Fair enough. Well, in the interim, we're going to check in with Ruth and Alejandro again and see if they're going to keep things open in the future. Yeah. We're like pretty much closed now, except for what we like to call our love friend. Yeah, our <laughs> love friend is fantastic. Not quite a lover or more than a lover, less than a girlfriend, I guess. Shared between both of you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. We always hang out together. She's great. Yeah. She's really ideal. But it's interesting. Uh, we had um, someone on talking about non-monogamy today that we did an interview with, and he was saying it's kind of like communism. He was like, you know, theoretically, communism is a great thing. It's it's awesome, and it can be really good for people. But actually, when you put it into practice, sometimes, like, it doesn't work out. So I guess for me, do you guys – are you still committed to this? Is this something that you want to have happen? Do you think, like, the bumps or the setbacks are worth making this be a part of your life? Oh, yeah. I think it's actually been – I mean – even with all the frustration, I think it's been a really, really, even if we never open it up again, which I highly doubt that we won't, but even if we never did, we learned so much about each other because in order to have a non-monogamous relationship, you have to talk so much. And through that process, I we both excavated our feelings on relationships. And there are things that we talked about that you could go through a regular relationship never, ever talking about. My fear is about maybe losing interest in sex, which I is really, really common, you know? And 
And, uh, you know, I mean, I remember one conversation. He was like, what are you, what do you really want out of this? What do you really want? And he kept asking that question until finally I was able to like dig it out and say like, you know, this is, these are what my fears are. These are what my frustrations are. Like, this is like all these issues that you could just shove under the rug and many people do. Um, and I think it's made our, I think it's made our relationship a lot stronger and more honest. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to be honest and say that time will, time will tell if this is for us or me. I don't know. I'm still kind of not fully sure, but I do agree with everything she said. I think there's a lot of very positive things to it in terms of um, you really have to communicate everything. And um, the, 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 the fear of jealousy as we know it, which is she out and about having drinks with girlfriends, is something going to happen? Like that just kind of dissipates completely. And, and the concept of, of, of cheating just uh, completely becomes a whole other thing. Uh, and and I, I think that's uh, very refreshing, especially after being, you know, uh, married in eight years of a very monogamous relationship and uh, being um, being studied every time I came back from a DJ gig as if I had come back from an orgy. And I was so unhealthy. Uh, now we come home from orgies together. <laughs> that's it for this episode of huff post love and sex thanks to our producer and editor caitlin baguki who isn't necessarily scared of open relationships but she loves monogamy loves it and production assistant jorge corona please let us know what you think of the show especially if you have an idea for an episode or want to share your story You'll find us on Twitter with a handle at HuffPostPodcast. And you can always email us. Our address is loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. Both with your ideas and dates for Noah. Additionally, if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show, which is basically a service for us all. And by all means, good people, click those gold stars. If we get more of them this episode, HuffPost has promised to buy us our very own land for a polyamorous commune. Our next show will be all about the penis. Yeah, it will. So if you have a penis or are a fan of penises or have feelings about penises, you won't want to miss it. Subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss out on the next show. It's going to be big. Pun intended. Clever. Or micro. Or tiny. Or not so big. Or just right. Or just right.